Well, Sam Burrows, welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. Great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. I think you may be one of our first international guests, which is great. I think New Zealand still counts as international. Would you agree? Uh, I mean, according to, according to New Zealand, we definitely would count ourselves as international, but maybe the rest of the world are unsure about whether we're a state of Australia or not, which is a little bit depressing. Oh, dude. Oh, look, it's funny, isn't it? Because if if we were different countries, and of course we are, um, the news hot off the press, actually, Sam, is that you are defecting in some way or other. You're actually coming over... Uh, coming over to the West Island and uh, setting up shop over here. Can you tell us a little bit, a little bit about what you're what you're doing over in Australia in the in the coming years? I love that you called me. A, what did you call me? A defector. <laughs> I, I mean, only nice things by that term. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's stronger words some Kiwis might use, like traitor. Uh, but you know, it, that's true. I'm uh, I'm moving over to Sydney at the start of next year. So. Um, very excited to go to a slightly warmer climate, and um, yeah, it'll be it'll be a nice change. Yeah, and that's right. So uh, before we get stuck into the meat of our discussion today, which I certainly am looking forward to, uh, I'd like to just dive into Sam your background in Christian education, uh, how you got into it, what makes you passionate about it. So as as um, sort of generic as it is, can you just tell us a little bit about uh, what it is you do with yourself? Yeah. Okay. Well, I could, so I can tell you how I got in and it sort of will lead us to where we are now. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do when I left school. So I went to England for a year and when I got back, still didn't know. So, so my mum actually stuck me into a, a teaching program and I thought, great, I'll give it a year. And if I don't like it, I'll, um, I'll just do something else. Um, but it turned out I, um, I really, um, I really got hooked. And my first lecturer was a guy called Rod Thompson, which will be known to a few people in Aussie and, um, he really inspired me not only to, to get into teaching, but to understand the Bible, understand culture and philosophy. And I, that's when I really started my love for learning. Um, so finished my degree, um, went uh, and taught in a Christian school for three years. Um, and then I went and worked for a church for a couple of years doing young adult ministry, um, went back into teaching uh, for another three years. And then, um, you know, I'd studied a little bit of theology in between as well. Uh, ended up being a, a deputy principal of a little school just north of Auckland, uh, and during that time got asked to start lecturing into a tertiary program, uh, which was a combination of theology and education. And that's where I really started to, you know, I think really started to hum, and eventually ended up at Laidlaw College uh, doing um, full-time lecturing uh, in our in our education program. So I've been doing that for the last four years. Uh, and during that time, I have, you know, made made friends with a lot of Christian schools around New Zealand and uh, ended up making friends with CEN, which was really cool, and been over to Australia a few times. And uh, it's been really good to, to see what's going on in Australia as well. So, yeah, I guess um, it's been one of those things that I've just, I guess, continued to, to grow into, and it's been a fun journey. I think one of the great things about being a Christian is having a full appreciation for God's A, sense of humor, and B, the sort of narratival arc that he places in your life. Because oftentimes, like many characters in the movies we'll talk about today, you can be traveling through life and you go, I do not know what the Dickens is going on here. Like, I think I'm doing the right thing. This feels right. But it just, um, 
I'm not quite sure what's going on. And then you look back in five years in the fullness of time and you go, wow, I couldn't be happier with where I am. And it's just God's kindness and God's goodness that I've, I've landed here. That certainly sounds like uh, that's been part of your story. And you said you're coming across to Australia. So uh, after a really rich medley of things you've had going on in New Zealand, what exactly is it that you'll be doing in Australia? Yeah, uh, apart from learning a little bit more about rugby league, um, probably uh, I'm going to be working for CN as um, <laughs> the, uh, what is it, the um, Director of Professional Learning. So um, nice fancy title and I'll just be, um, I guess, coordinating some of the professional development that goes around uh, the CEN network in Australia. So a really cool challenge and a, and a, a nice chance to bring um, some of the things I've been doing together. So it'll be good. And you feel like as you embrace a new role, something like that, new role, new country, do you get the really tangible feeling that, oh, actually, again, in God's kindness and goodness, a lot of the things that I've been doing up until this point are going to set me up to do this next job really, really well? Oh, totally. I think it's that's the exciting thing is that I've got so many ideas. So it'll be um, a big, you know, a really cool opportunity to try something cool. All right, well, let's get stuck into the meat of our conversation then, Sam. We're, of course, talking about an article that you've written for the Christian Teachers Journal. Uh, You've titled your article, Authenticity, Formation, and the Multiverse. Now, that is a catchy title. There are going to be listeners who are thinking, you know, I've heard uh, when it comes to Christian ed, I've heard a lot about authenticity, and I've heard a whole heck of a lot about formation. But what exactly does this have to do with the multiverse? So I guess to to start off, for the less sci-fi literate amongst us, could you explain what the multiverse even is and and perhaps uh, share with us what that might have to do with Christian education? Yeah, maybe I'm just a master of clickbait. Maybe that's all it is. Um, but uh, no, the um, <laughs> the uh, the multiverse is really uh, obviously it's something that's been popping up in a whole bunch of sci-fi and Marvel movies over the last few years. Uh, to the point where I think we're sort of looking at uh, media and thinking, is every movie and TV series about the multiverse at the moment? It certainly feels like that to me. So my question began to be, well, what on earth is going on? So. Um, there are a few different um, ways you could answer that question. Like maybe it's a response to the internet. You know, we're, we're being presented with a whole bunch of um, ideas about what we, you know, all these different realities, or maybe it's an idea of social media where we get an insight into all these different uh, worlds and lives. Uh, or maybe it's just, you know, media conglomerates that want to exploit um, our nostalgia and by just generating endless content from their IPs that they've acquired. So, um, you can take that really cynical view, but um, I think uh, that this focus on the multiverse, and I, which I said in the article, is is actually um, a way of exploring this anxiety that I think that we've grown to acquire, which is, what am I doing with my life, and did I make the right choices? Uh, which is all about self authoring, um, and so. The multiverse is this metaphor, this powerful metaphor, which is actually our way of working out this anxiety, I think, which is, hey, the only person who's in charge of your life is you. You better make a good life out of that. So, you know, life is what you make it, but also life is what you make it. So, you know, make it good. That's a fascinating insight. And I remember talking with Stephen McAlpine. You'll be familiar with some of his work where he was actually saying he linked those two concepts in the same way you did. He talked about the fact that we've got more agency, more freedom than ever. We've got the ability to, in many ways, create almost out of nothing these personalities, construct them from ourselves. However, 
with that, um, while it looked quite shiny on the packet, when we actually unwrap it and try and do it, we see a tremendous burden. And that's a burden mm. that you're talking about here as, as self-authoring. And mm. we're starting to realize, well, perhaps, I don't know, perhaps we weren't meant to be the ones who author ourselves. Um, you, you talk in your article, actually, one of Taylor Swift's in her commencement speech to the yeah. New York University students, she said, um, well, you know, we're all writers. Uh, and it can be really overwhelming to figure out who to be and when, uh, who you are now and how to act in order how to get sort of where you want to go. I've got some good news. It's all up to you. This is what Taylor Swift is saying to the students. And she also says, I've got some terrifying news. Uh, it's totally up to you. So um, that that's going to sound pretty interesting to sort of the average uh, age of, uh, of the sort of the average cohort of teachers in Australia, which is about 50 years old, um, <laughs> what kind? my question for you, Sam, what kind of stresses or, or pressures are our current students feeling, do you think, around self-authoring that maybe the previous generation of people may not have felt? Yeah, or well, you may have to indulge me in doing a little bit of work in history, if that's all right. Um, so one of the interesting uh things to 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 know is i think really that this isn't just out of nowhere um so really if you 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 could track it for the last 500 years but we'll we'll try and narrow it down to the last 100 years or so and you see some really interesting shifts going on in culture um one of them is uh at the beginning of world war one you see um queues of uh young men across europe queuing up at train stations often stretching for miles to to go to war and the reasons that they're they're doing that is because they believe in the reasons um, that they're going to war. They're going for king and country, for virtue, for honor and sacrifice, and empire. These these big external words that they believed in. Um, but their experience when they finally get to the battlefield uh, is is pretty uh, is pretty well. It's pretty. It shifts their brain completely because they see their their mates being blown up on battlefields uh, seemingly for no reason. They're getting eaten alive by rats and maggots and frostbitten to death. And for the first time in history, actually, um, those words like king and country, empire, sacrifice, virtue and honor, they actually ring hollow because they're like, well, what was the point of that? So that was a massive uh, big shift in, in the mind of people across the Western world when it came to those experiences. You then fast forward to World War II see the uh, the nuclear bomb being dropped and, you know, actually a progress myth, uh, which had been, you know, through our technology and, I guess, political expertise and medicine, we're going to end up conquering the world. And so this, this was this big external narrative that we believed in. And then our greatest technological achievement to split the atom ended up in the most hellish, land, uh, you know, scene that we've ever seen. And so these big externals that we believed in, whether they be virtues or, or stories like progress, they actually began to, to really crumble. And so what we began to do is think, well, you know, we can't trust in these big externals anymore. Where are we going to look? Well, we're going to look internally now because externals don't work. So we began to look inside and obviously the, the 60s were like that. But you fast forward uh, a few decades to where we are now and actually that's, uh, you know, gone into hyperdrive, which is, you know, the only place I can really trust is inside myself. And so, you know, a Canadian philosopher, uh, Charles Taylor, would actually say um, this, he'll call that the massive subjective turn. We've gone inside. It's all about our own sense of what's right and wrong. And that's led us to, again, what I quoted, which is the age of authenticity. And um, I think to answer your question finally, <laughs> what does this mean for the average um, teacher in Christian education? 
It's just to know that I think probably what we're seeing with, with Gen Z is, um, the absolute pinnacle or peak of, of, of what that is. And this is this complete reliance on yourself, which has led to, it'd be fair to say a, a little bit of resignation, a little bit of despair and very hard to hold on to hope because there is nothing outside you. Now, I think there, there are some different shifts going on. So the article is very much a, a snapshot, but that's probably given you a, enough to, <laughs> to speak back to, I guess. Wow, there's, uh, it's a tale of two tailors, isn't it? We've got Taylor Swift and Charles Taylor, um, <laughs> the two perhaps great philosophers of our age. So it's, it's interesting to see them in the same conversation. Um, it's, it is very interesting, isn't it, when you've got people, and, and you allude to this in your article, I think it's a fascinating concept, um, people still have a strong moral guiding principle that they seem to be acting according to, However, they've lost a transcendent anchor point. So yeah. it's, it's almost like um, they are steering their boat and their North Star, the guiding star, is just a small LED on the bow of their ship. Mm. And, and so there's, there's no real external anchor point and it seems to be actually backfiring. Um, you will be as across the statistics as anyone, I'm sure, Sam. But we, what we see is unprecedented rates of anxiety and depression and a whole lot of uh, pathologies that are really rearing their heads. Do you think the burden of self-authorship um, and the, uh, the weight of having to construct your own identity and direction and be the main character, do you think that's actually starting to show some pretty significant cracks in our younger cohort of uh, students? Yeah, I think it is starting to show some cracks, and I don't think all of those cracks are bad news, actually. So um, what's really interesting is that, you know, I went to speak to a group of students in a Christian school a couple of months ago, and the teachers asked me to speak to the students about deconstruction. I was like, oh, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm a millennial. I know all about deconstruction. It's been one of the themes of our demographic, you know. So I got up there in front of all these students. It would have been, it was a packed room, and I was like, so deconstruction. (laughs) And none of these kids knew what that word even meant. And it struck me, actually, that um, what happened is we've actually moved on. There's nothing that these young people are really deconstructing from. There's no assumed knowledge uh, that they're actually taking with them. In some ways, I think in culture generally, it wouldn't be the same in Christian schools, but in culture generally, there is no biblical literacy. There is no uh, cultural awareness of biblical stories or they, there's no biblical literacy. And so... In some ways, it's good because I think millennials carried a little bit of hangover towards church and they sort of were a little bit disillusioned and they reacted against it. And we we now have this post-Christian ex-evangelical movement going on that, you know, is into craft beer and tattoos. Um, uh, But these kids don't have that. They don't have this um, experience. And so they're actually asking the big questions almost from a bit of more of a blank slate. And what that means is, I think, um, is that yes, they're seeing the the I guess the the hollow nature of of trying to be your own guiding light, and it actually means they're now looking again for something a little bit more stable. So, I guess my argument that I didn't have time in the article to talk about is I think we've moved from modern to postmodern, which is a railing against uh, big narratives, to now we're moving into a meta modern moment, which means I think there's this uh, this new openness to something that feels a little bit more transcendent, something that might be able to explain uh, where we are a little bit better, an openness to meaning in a real sense and not just one that I've constructed. So 
I think that's actually a really positive opening that we're into now um, and very, very interesting for us that have been used to talking about postmodernism for such a long time. That is a fascinating distinction, isn't it? And if we're not aware to the cultural difference, I mean, I'm 30, 33, somewhere around there, um, and I consider myself as a pretty young bloke. But um, if I am not careful, I can quite easily assume that the people that I'm teaching who are 16, 17-year-olds are actually thinking the same way as I am. If I've got myself rather charitably categorized as a young person and them in the same category, but actually it's, it is crazy the difference. Um, I, yeah. I often talk about school teaching, especially in a Christian school, as cross-cultural ministry. And we can fail to realize that it is cross-cultural because most of them look like us and come from the same sort of areas we do. But man, that cultural gap is huge and probably we can get mucked around by it even more so than if we were going to teach in Burkina Faso because we're actually not wise to the fact that there is a cultural gap there. So if if I'm a millennial, and you alluded to this when you're talking about deconstruction and these guys are sort of double-clicking on that and getting nothing, if I'm a millennial out there or, or even a little bit older, um, what are some of the things I need to be keeping in mind as I'm engaging with these younger generation of students so that we're not just completely talking past each other the whole time? Yeah, I actually really love this question um, because I've, I've actually given a lot of time to this question because, um, I mean, one thing that I've tried to do is, you know, I've, I've been in this academic world, but um, I wanted to dip my toes in the water still. And so I've taken on a youth group for the last couple of years and um, I've had to like really work with this and realize that I can't really draw on a lot of my own experience to bring it to these guys. Cause it's just a completely different world. You know, when I was a youth leader, uh, sorry, when I was in youth group, uh, you'd be able to, you know, God loves you. Don't do anything silly and let's play chubby bunnies. And that was probably okay. Um, but these kids um, are like highly politicized. They sort of really know what's going on. They're exposed to every idea uh, and they're really plugged into, um, I, th- I think, social issues in a way that I certainly wasn't. I was sort of, you know, more interested in girls than anything else. And it's very different. Um, so I think um, there's some big differences here. Like being a millennial myself, uh, I really grew up in the 90s and um, the 90s were this golden moment for the Western world. Um, you know, it was Starbucks on every corner. McDonald's was booming. We had friends. We had the Fresh Prince. We had the Spice Girls. Um, you know, it was a good time. Um, and, you know, globally, this is where globalization really took off. And and, and I don't really, really even mean just in, in the way it operated, but we really believed in the global story, this myth that We'd actually moved uh, into a new era. We'd hold hands, sing Kumbaya across the world. It was going to be okay. And there were writers like Francis Fukuyama that were writing things like, um, uh, you know, the the end of man or something. I can't remember what it was called, but the um, we'd moved into an economic world, essentially post-war world. Um, and we actually really, I think, believed that. And so it was this golden time. But then 9-11 happened and 9-11 really reminded us that that's actually not the way the world is. It's full of conflict. It's full of like clashing stories. And, um, it, you know, it wasn't as maybe as, you know, easy to work out as we thought it was. So, you know, we have these kids that have not been brought up in the 90s. They've been brought up in the shadow of 9-11 in the shadow of two recessions and uh, the shadow of other political, you know, I guess political leaders becoming quite disappointing. Uh, now you've, you know, in the shadow of a pandemic at a really crucial time in their lives, and now you've got Ukraine and you've got the, the issue with Israel and Palestine. And you're sort of thinking 
for people my age, our default was the world's pretty okay and then bad stuff happens. Uh, but for these kids, it's like the world was actually never okay. Um, bad stuff always happens. So their whole view of the world is far darker um, and far, I guess, more open to despair. And, and I think, you know, I often ask, think of the question like, you know, is it that they see actually reality more for what it is than we did? I think there's there's definitely an element to that. And so I think we've got, got to be really good at talking about hope in a real sense. And the Bible's great with this where it's like terrible things will happen. Can you trust God and hope anyway? And I think we're being forced to really reckon with hope in, in a really true biblical sense now. That's a really fascinating observation. And I think, I mean, you're right, there is so much, you talk about hope in a biblical sense, there's so much hope in the scriptures. You read First Peter, he's the apostle of hope, many people have called him, and there's so much data. And hope in a hopeless world really does shine quite brightly. Another, I'll be interested to hear what you think of this, Sam, I um I have an older friend. He's about 50 years old, right? And he is still part of the sort of house church movement, house church, extremely low church. Uh, he's saying, who's going to walk into a church these days, right? Who's actually going to go into one of those buildings and see uh, a pastor with a dog collar? No one's getting excited by that stuff anymore, okay? So what, what what do we need to do? Well, we need to make our church as much like just an ordinary thing as possible. So we're going to have it in a completely neutral place. We're going to have it in a library. Um, we're not going to have big lengthy sermons. We might not even sing. Uh, and what he's trying to do, I guess, is remove a lot of these more alien features. Yet I've seen a couple of the younger people I know, so in the 17, 18, 19 bracket, um, convert to Christianity recently. And interestingly enough, what species, what subgenre of Christianity did they convert to? Eastern Orthodoxy, all right? And if it, they wear their transcendence on their sleeve, there is no doubt about that. They've got um, they've got these pictures, these icons of the saints. They've, I mean, it smells wild. I went along to one of those services. It smells absolutely wild in those places. You've got the, the, the smells, the priest is dressed in this stuff, that is so unlike anything you would see, they're wearing their transcendence on their sleeve and people are actually loving it. So you've got these conflicting impulses. One guy's going, let's make it as normal as possible. But actually what we see in the youth of today is that they're trying to reach out and grasp something that is as transcendent. I teach, I teach Year 7 Christian Studies, for example. And what do the, pe- the students want to talk about uh, a lot? Uh, they want to talk about angels and demons and miracles, and they're fascinated by the stuff that is so different and alien. They're almost craving the transcendent. So that's a generational gap that I have observed there. Does that sort of stack up with how you perceive these different generations interacting with one another? Yeah, I mean, the data that's just come out of the Faith and Belief Survey for Australia and New Zealand uh, definitely shows that... um, People are far more open to institutional religion. Like we've seen a bit of a slump in in trust in institutions um, in the past few decades, uh, but it seems to be on a bit of an upswing. And to be honest, though, like the public intellectuals that um, young people are turning to are all about transcendence and all about trying to find that order. And so this is why you have such a big um, uptake with people like Jordan Peterson, because uh, he's basically introducing order back to um, back to reality, introducing the transcendent into psychology. Now, I'm not here to advocate for him. I think there's some pretty big uh, differences between how I use scripture and he does and how he uses the word God and all that kind of stuff. 
but it is interesting to see that happening. Um, they've, they're very different from the way that millennials were. Millennials really were railing against the system. Um, I think Gen Z are wanting to find something that can bring meaning back. So, yeah, I think I'd push against the, the house church. That sounds like a very millennial uh, <laughs> answer to, to things. Um, and actually, I think they want to see you. I think that's just the thing. That's authenticity combined with something substantial will really speak, but it's not authenticity for its own sake. It's authenticity aiming for something real. I think that's a, a very salient observation. Uh, now, as we close, one of the interesting things that we talked about earlier, I mentioned that I thought of teaching as cross-cultural ministry. It's definitely a ministry. As Christian educators, we can get on board with that fact. However, it's far more cross-cultural than many of us realize. And what I see in you and what you've done so well, Sam, is that you really have your finger on the pulse of this culture. You see, I mean, I was reading your article and it was an absolute baptism into these cultural references, most of which had completely flown right over my head. So I, first of all, um, my congratulations to you for being able to keep abreast of all this sort of stuff. <laughs> but as we're looking to understand and care for and love these young people, um, A, we need to know how they think, all right? We need to read the scripture, but we also need to read the culture. When it comes to reading culture, something you do so well, um, what tips do you have uh, for the average bystander such as myself who's just trying to get a few handholds on this thing? Okay, that's a really hard question, actually. I mean, I could just say what I do. Um, I think part of part of it is actually just uh, listening to the young people, but it's actually learning to also – It's this is going to be so obvious, but the internet really is their primary reality. And, I mean, this is one of the things that has, has come out of all the research too. It's for millennials – we have our internet world and we have the real world um, and the real world is our primary re- reality and the internet is our secondary reality, even if it might be a major secondary reality. For Gen Z, it's the other way around. They they are in both worlds, but the internet is their primary reality. And, you know, I've had kids in my youth group send me their screenshots of their screen time and one girl had 10 and a half hours one day in her holidays where she was online and one boy had watched the equivalent of 36 24-hour days of TikTok between January to June. And so that actually has a massive effect. Um, and so actually in, the internet is where it's all happening. And so, I mean, there's these crazy things going on. I mean, one of the big things is is how it's um, constructing what it means to be male and female. And so as a kickback to a lot of this, the ways that masculinity is felt to have been eroded, you have these new masculinities rising up against it. So these these more tos- toxic, you know, dominating forms of masculinity around people like Andrew Tate, which is like, we'll just kind of dominate women and, um, and we'll, we'll be an alpha male, not a beta male or a sigma male and all these weird words that are turning up. And that really asks some pretty serious questions about what does Christ say to masculinity? And, and similarly, you got some things on the, on the, the girl side of stuff, which is, you know, got these new trends coming through like girl dinner and girl math and, and hot girl summer and things like that. And actually, these are the ways that they're constructing meaning and communicating with each other. And and just actually, I hate to say it, but memes are actually really important. If they're kind of like the primary way that young people are communicating, decoding those memes, it might sound like a silly little hobby, but it's actually uh, very, very important. And then obviously paying attention to the way that these young people are expressing themselves through song as well. Um, So there are a few key artists that I'd, I'd definitely look to, but... It's a, it's a, the, the thing is, 
um, 10 or 15 years ago, we used to be able to say, this is what culture is like, and it would be true for about five years. What I'm finding is that something may be true for like three months, and then you've got to look at it again, and you've got to look at it again because it keeps moving really fast. And this cross-cultural mission thing you're talking about, um, <laughs> it's not as easy as it used to be. And so you're either someone like me who's a freak and finds that a little bit fun, or you're going to feel really overwhelmed by it. So I think try and be a little bit online, but not too online. Um, and definitely talk to your kids and get them to um, to feedback to you what it all means, because sometimes it is just bizarre. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right, Sam. And I think um, it's, a, it's a great piece of advice there to be sort of listening in, keeping your finger on the pulse, understanding the memes. Man, I tell you what, I read something the other day that said one of the most persuasive elements of the Reformation um, was, was small posters with an image and text on them that were plastered all around the place and were very persuasive in changing people's mind. And you just go, oh, man, that's a meme. These guys were meme lords. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. The Reformation was won by memes. Um, who knows? Maybe the second Reformation and revival will come through memes. Um, I've got my hopes. Uh, but um, So that's, that's really good. And I guess my encouragement, I'm nowhere near as practiced at this as you are, Sam, um, but uh, sort of two reflections. A, um, this is also where I'm, I'm glad of the body. I'm glad of the body of Christ because I don't think I could get as across this as you are, yet I'm glad we have people like you. And I'm, I'm certainly glad. I mean, it's New Zealand's loss, but Australia's gain. You're coming over to these CEN schools, of which I'm a part, and I'm sure you'll be able to help us keep abreast of these things. Um, but B, I see within myself definitely uh, a species of snobbery. Um, you can... It's so easy, you know, one day the grade 10s will walk into your classroom and they'll all be doing or saying this one thing and you go, man, what a bunch of potato heads. Like, yeah, okay, so they saw something on TikTok or whatever. Um, but it's actually interesting to step back and go, no, actually, um, I'm, not, I'm not judging the culture, I'm understanding the culture and hopefully in understanding it I'm going to get opportunities um, to present Christ in a compelling way and to apply Christ in a way that makes sense uh, to those people. Now, uh, before we wrap up here, Sam, um, is there anywhere people can go? If they go, man, this Sam Burrows guy, this guy is on fire. Um, is there anywhere people can go to hear more of you or read more of what you've written? Uh, <laughs> well, that's really great. Mention if that happened. Um, um, at this stage, not really. I mean, um, maybe next year when I'm over and have a little bit more time for this kind of thing, I might, might, put something together but you know at this point you're just going to have to sit in that longing um and uh you know how long oh lord for that so <laughs> look yeah as i said it's been a real treat talking with you i certainly look forward to seeing you in australia in the coming years and we pray that god blesses you richly in all your endeavors over here Thank you. I, I was just thinking it might be a good thing to to end with a with a quote on what we've talked about. Is that okay? Please. Okay, sweet. So there's this great quote by a theologian called Kevin Van Hooser. And uh, you might think, oh, maybe we don't need to do this thing, keeping up with young people's culture. But um, I love this quote. He says um, in his book, Everyday Theology, he says, I cannot love my neighbor unless I understand him and the cultural world he inhabits. Cultural literacy, the ability to understand patterns and product of everyday life, this is an integral part of obeying the law of love. So probably what I'd say is um, keeping on top of youth culture and everything that's happening is actually a way of loving our students. So 
yes, it's hard work, but you know, if we're doing it for them. Beautiful, Sam. Well, that's right. Anything done in the service of our neighbour, even if it's watching the latest Spider-Man movie, is something that the Lord will smile upon and we will not have to give an account of on the last day. So um, you, you've sanctified many a Netflix evening. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much, Sam. It's been great to talk with you. And I, look, I'm sure we'll see you again sometime on the Christian Education Podcast. Look forward to it.